Well, on this particular Sunday in the church calendar, we remember the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. An event that you think might just be, okay, an event like, uh, you know, in, in the beginning, you know, Luke's version of the gospel, you get his circumcision and dedication and so forth and the passage of Simeon that we considered last week. And so it might just be another ritualistic thing he's going through. And, um, but, but you would make a mistake if you thought that, that this is not that, not that the circumcision of Jesus was not important either. It was, but it's interesting that something like the circumcision or the dedication of Jesus is found in one gospel, but the baptism of Jesus is found in all four gospels that whatever's happening here. In this event, and our text was read for us this morning by Mark as our New Testament reading, Matthew chapter 3, whatever's happening here is recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. That is, all the Gospel writers understand and believe that what's happening here is of such significance that it needs to be recorded. It needs to be taught to us. That is, I I believe in many ways it would be like, uh, you know, uh, if... If we did such a thing, I remember Frank Smith, you know, back in the early days of this church, and he tried to bequeath it to me, but I, it didn't take, you know, was he gave me a pitch pipe, you know, because we were singing a cappella, and, and, and I remember in, in hearing Frank, you know, and Ivar's tried to get me to use it, you know, but, you know, he'd get and he'd see, I, I don't know how to read music, and, uh, you know, he'd see what uh, key it's in, and he'd, you know, he'd blow that little note, and that would set, and there'd be some, you know, congregational humming, and then they'd, they'd hit off on the right note. Now, now, if if Tim Gregg were doing this, if, if Ben were doing this, uh, it would work beautifully. You, you, and then you'd hit that note. I would do it. <laughs> I would blow the note, and then I'd start on whatever note I would typically start on. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so that was very disoriented. So I realized, you know what? The pitch pipe is going away, okay? But but the, the point of the pitch <laughs> The point of the pitch pipe is to set the key so everyone knows where we're starting. It kind of lets everyone know where this story of music is going. And in that sense, here at the beginning of the the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, the baptism of Jesus is like setting the key. It's, it's, It's blowing the pitch pipe. It's letting us know, giving us the key now through which the rest of this story is going to be understood. This sets the groundwork for us to understand everything. That's how important it is. And hence, all the gospel writers include uh, this story of the baptism of our Lord. Now, I want us to notice a couple things. You have the text this morning is really divided into two chunks, if you will. So we're taking a, a larger thing. We're taking the whole chapter, the whole event. And what we have on the front side is a sermon by John, John the Baptist who is, we know, commissioned from the point of his conception uh, to be the forerunner, that prophetic Malachi, Isaiah prophesied forerunner of the coming of the king. He was going to run before the king and tell everyone to make the path straight. You know, all, all, all valleys must be raised and all mountains must be lowered and the crooked ways must be made straight for the coming of the king. And that was what John was commissioned to do. And we haven't, you know, besides his his conception and birth, we haven't really heard anything about John. And now we're flashing forward almost 30 years, 20-something years, and John reappears. And he's out in the wilderness, and he's preaching, and he's summoning people who are coming out to be baptized. 
So we have John. Now, one of the things, I, so we have the sermon, and then second, we have the baptism. And I want us to consider both of these things. But first, I want to consider the sermon of John and the context of the arrival of Jesus onto the public scene. And as the text was read, I don't know if it shocks you, but I think it should. In some sense, it should be a little disorienting. Because if you listen to the Sermon of John, it is unbelievably caustic. It is combative. I mean, it's it, John is out here with an attitude, okay? He's, he's out here, he's, he's dressed like a wild man. And he's out there and people are coming and he's telling them, what are you doing here? You know, tell them, well, I don't know, we came to be baptized. You snakes. You know, who told you to come out here? You know, he's confronting them that way. And then he's, and then he's jumping on them about the judgment and there's going to be fire and some, you know, and, and one's coming after me and it's going to baptize you with fire. It's, it's unbelievably combative, very aggressive. And I think this is important for us to reckon with, especially given the past couple texts that we've looked at since Christmas. And, and that is like, it, it, there's been a, I hope, a washing away of the sentimentality that sometimes can come around Christmas, the birth of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus. Now, I, I'm, all for, I'm all for sentiment, and sometimes I get caught up in sentimentality. I, I've confessed to you, I'm a very nostalgic person, so I, I, I'm, I'm always prone to being taken in by sentimentality. So I, I, I get that. But right from the beginning, think about the text we thought about after Christmas with Herod, and, and, you know, as the, as, the, as the wise men come in that beautifully sentimental story of the arrival of the wise men with their gifts and so forth, remember that that story happens in the context of mass murder. That, that the baby Jesus is born, yes, angels singing and shepherds coming and all these wonderful things, and then mass murder that level of darkness and evil is the context into which Jesus is born. And it's like in that moment, all the sentimentality kind of just fades away. And what we hear instead is the weeping of Rachel who refuses to be comforted because her children are no more, we're told in Matthew. And then the, the thinness of the sentimentality fades away pretty quickly. Then in the church calendar, we jump quickly to the arrival of Jesus in his public ministry. And again, there's no sentimentality here. It gets right to business. John the Baptist shows up like an Old Testament prophet. Indeed, he is, right? We're still, on the, we're still in an Old Testament world in, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And John is, if you will, the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets, the last guy pointing forward to Jesus, then everyone else will point back to Jesus. But John is the last guy pointing forward to Jesus, and he has the unbelievable privilege of pointing him out. Not just giving us shadows and figures, some cloudy image of a servant in Isaiah 53, but actually pointing to the man Jesus and saying, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There he is, everything we've been waiting for. But notice the context of the arrival of Jesus into his public ministry. And here, I, I, I mentioned when we sang that psalm today, our opening psalm, which, again, it's one of those ones where, you know, you, you know, you're singing it and you're wondering, do we have any new visitors here for the first time? Because a song like that, people are not used to singing like that when they come into church. And I, 
I mentioned Jonathan Edwards because he would preach that way so freely, and we're just not used to hearing sermons uh, like that. And yet, here we have in John the Baptist, John the Baptist preaches like this. John the Baptist is interested in, like, in, you know, wooing he, no one into the kingdom. This is, this is the least seeker sensitive sermon you'll ever hear. He actually says, What are you doing here? All right. <laughs> Who told you to come? <laughs> Something I've never said to any person who's visited. What are you? Who told you to come? <laughs> but that's what John does. So the context Jesus comes into is a context of this kind of combative uh, state. Something's wrong. Something serious is afoot here as Jesus comes. So let's just think of the language in it. In the beginning uh, of the text, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what's he say? First words, repent. Right? The first words John says are, you need to change. Something needs to change. A repentance is a turning around, a letting go of this and a grabbing of that. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything the prophets of old have been talking about is right here. We're at the cusp of it. And what does it demand of us? Repentance. That is to say, the story of humanity is not about this gradual merging of heaven and earth. It's not about this gradual coming together of God and man. No, when these two come together, it is going to be explosive. It's combustible. The image I use with my students all the time is fire and gasoline. God is a consuming fire and you are gasoline. And gasoline and fire don't come together without an explosion. And every time fire beats gasoline. Every time, fire remains and gasoline goes away. So this is the collision that's about to happen here as the kingdom of God is breaking in among men. And so John calls his audience to recognize the moment and do what is necessary and to repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is right here. And then we have the prophecy of which, of which I referred to in, in, uh, in verse 3. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. And you know all the rest of that goes into that prophecy. Again, make straight the path. You are not sufficient. You are not prepared for the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom. Radical transformation is needed in our lives. And we are not equipped or prepared for this. So John is preaching these things. And then people begin to gather. They're coming to this preaching, unbelievably. People are coming to be baptized by him, verse 6, uh, confessing their sins. And John looks, and that's when he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what's interesting is when I joke, and we joke about who told you to come here, what's fascinating about this is the ones he's saying this to. He says this to the ones who, if anybody would be there, if something big is going down with the kingdom, it would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of course, they would be there. They're the, they're the, the Navy SEALs of the, of the, of the kingdom of God. I mean, they're, they're the, they're the top dogs. And yet these are the ones 
John turns to and says, who told you to come here? And here in a, again, you talk about the disorientation of the whole moment here and of the whole sermon. He speaks to them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the elites, the holy of holy ones, if you will. And he calls them of all things, brood of vipers, which like, if you know your Bible, you know, brood is, is the offspring right, of snakes. And that is not an image that's like, oh, that's an interesting thing to come up with. Like, you know, like John's just quick with the tongue and he can say sharp cutting things. Like when you call somebody the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the snake, like, and you know your Bible, it's like, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good. Because in Genesis 3.15, when God is cursing everyone, the, the serpent and he's cursing the woman, and then he curses the man. He turns to the serpent first, and he curses the serpent. On your, on your belly you will crawl all the days of your life. You'll eat dust. And on top of that, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. And he, that is the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. But I will put enmity between the two offsprings. The offspring, the brood of the viper, and the brood of the woman. And John sees these Pharisees coming. If anybody is elite within the kingdom, it's these guys. And John turns to them. Again, just the disorienting nature. Everything is going to be redefined here. Or maybe not redefined, but that film, I, I talked about that film of familiarity, is going to be washed away. And we're going to see things for what they are. And the whitewashed sepulchers of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is going to be washed away. And they're going to be exposed by the word of John for what they are. And it turns out that what they are, Jews though they be, Pharisees though they be, with some kind of external holiness, though they have, they, it, it, it turns out, are in fact the seed of the serpent. They find themselves on that side of the equation. John calls it out, man. I mean, again, he just, he's going right after it. In shocking and disorienting ways, I think even for the common guy, you and I would be standing there, just common men and women who think something's going on out here and there's preaching and I guess we should go be baptized and confess our sins and sounds like something big is uh, afoot. And you hear John talking to the Pharisees that way. What is going on out here? And he challenges them in verse 9 after, after telling them, you know, uh, you, you, you offspring of the serpent who warns you to flee. Go bear fruit worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't think you're going to say, oh, no, we're not worried about the coming judgment because we're Abraham's offspring. He's already called him the offspring of the serpent. No, no, no. Don't, your, your, your Jewishness will do nothing for you. God can raise up sons from Abraham from these stones. As I've said in other sermons, he'll do it from something even more shocking, Gentiles. He, he raises up sons to Abraham out of Gentiles. Stones would not be offensive. Gentiles would be horribly offensive. And he does it with Gentiles. 
God can make sons of Abraham from it. Don't think that because you have some pedigree that you're going to be saved from this. You are not. And then in verses 10 through 12, he draws on two amazing images. Now, again, remember, this is John's introduction of Jesus. This is is Jesus being introduced onto the stage. And again, just feel the combative nature of this, the, the tension of all this. He turns in verse 10 and he uses the two images, first of a tree and then secondly of a, a winnowing fan, of, of a, a pile of, of, of wheat and chaff. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water of repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, uh, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The fire I'm talking about, it's coming. It's coming, and the one coming after me is the one bringing it. He's bringing the fire. And even now, the axe is in the tree. The axe is already being laid to the tree. Now, now again, when we think of the judgment of God, we think of it, again, off in the future, one day Christ will come again and and judge the world, and, and there's no doubt that's true. But John is saying something shocking here. He's saying that judgment is already at hand. The, the axe is already being swung. It's already there at the, at the tree. This is something you and I have to reckon with right now. The world is under judgment right now. And every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Man, what a way. Again, just what a way. This is, this is you, you can see that, that Jonathan Edwards in his preaching was onto something. It's not the only way you should ever preach, but my goodness gracious, it's like we need to hear these hard things. And let's not forget that it was in God's providence through that that the Great Awakening happened here in the Northeast. So maybe there is, maybe there's more to it even than we than we think. We need to point people to the realities here. We live in a comfortable age and we want to be comfortable with God. John Calvin said we should be suspicious of anything that makes us comfortable with God. And, and I get it. We, he, he's our Abba. And so, I, I, we, of course, we, I don't want to speak against that. He's our Father. He's our, you know. But he's our Father who art in heaven, whose name is to be hallowed, you know. Who is a consuming fire. And who will judge every tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he changes the metaphor in verse 12, after saying the one coming after me is the one who's going to baptize with fire, he changes to a second. He's not satisfied with one metaphor that communicates this. He turns to another metaphor. The winnowing fork fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn and will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The image here, of course, is that of a big pile of wheat and chaff as they would harvest it and then they would take the winnowing fork and they'd pick it up and on a very windy day throw it up into the air. The wind would blow the husk of the wheat over there because it's very light. It would blow it. It would land in a pile there. The wheat grains would fall back to the ground. And that would be the way you'd separate the wheat from the chaff. And the chaff, the husk is good for nothing. And so it gets burned with the fire. And John says, yep, that's what we're doing here. That is what is afoot. This kind of separation. 
And you'll remember that uh, that if we go back to, I encourage you, go back and read last week's test with Simeon when he talks about uh, a sword's going to pierce your soul, Mary, that Jesus is coming really for this kind of separation, for the revelation of many thoughts, right? It's, it, things are going to become very clear when Jesus comes in. Wheat and chaff are going to start to expose themselves. Again, brood of vipers and, and offspring of the woman are going to start to reveal themselves. But notice the intensity and the uh, um, ultimacy here. It's like, it's not just there's a separation. No, it gets cut down and thrown into the fire. The wheat and the chaff are separated. And what happens to the chaff? It doesn't just remain a nice happy pile over there. It gets burned up in unquenchable fire. So John is, pun intended, I guess, bringing the heat. He's, he's coming full blast here in proclaiming this coming of the kingdom, a coming of that comes in judgment. This is the context of our Lord's coming. This is the context of his ministry. So the first thing I want us to think about is the context of the ministry. The second thing I want us to think about is Jesus himself. Because in all of this, now, if we, if we didn't know the story and we heard, oh my goodness, now the king is coming and he's going to bring the fire, um, we would we'd kind of be like, okay, boy, let's let's pay attention here. When's this fire coming? And yet when the king appears, the one whose sandals John is not able to loosen, the one who is literally going to baptize with spirit and fire, a fire that if you are in him will be a a cleansing fire, but a fire which if you're not in him will be a consuming fire, you know, it'll consume you. Where do we find him? And shockingly, this king, and you know, does not come riding in in a blaze of glory. He doesn't come like a big ball of fire. He actually comes like you wouldn't recognize him. He's, he's actually online. <laughs> like when you, when you're, if you're just thinking, okay, this is going to be dramatic. Where is this one that's going to bring the sep- you know, the winnowing fork, the axe, the fire? Where is he? Oh, he's 10 people back in line like waiting to be baptized. And then he gets up here and John, now in in John's, in in the gospel of John, John has John the Baptist pointing him out. Behold, here he is. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here we have Jesus get up to John as he works his way up in line. And John says, no, I can't do this. I can't baptize the consuming fire. Like I've got, I'm flattened before you. I'm humbled before you. I'm the one that needs to be cleansed by you. And Jesus, so he tries to prevent him. And Jesus said to him, and this is in verse 15, Jesus answered him and said to him, permit it to be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This needs to be done as a fulfillment of all the things that God has promised and so John with trembling I have no doubt went down into the water with Jesus and baptized him so the sermon is disorienting and if we just start to get our legs under us in this sermon and think okay wow the context of the incarnation the context of the ministry of Jesus is one of like cataclysmic judgment 
And we just begin to start to glimpse that. And as we do, become unsettled and nervous again because, okay, I I will be judged. Just as we kind of deal with that disorientation, we get this secondary disorientation when the judge is one of us. In line, about to be baptized with us. Like when the king comes, he comes on our side of the fiery judgment. He stands with us. The judge, if you will, gets up from behind the bench and comes and stands on this side of the bar with his guilty people and goes into the water. And I chose the title for the sermon this morning from Isaiah 53, that he was numbered with the transgressors. Yes, he was. Not in some prophetic kind of poetic way. He is literally numbered with the transgressors. He is literally standing in their midst, in line with them, doing what they do, walking into the water to be baptized on their behalf. It would be a fair question, and I ask again, my students to wrestle with it, like, why is Jesus repenting? If this is a baptism of repentance, why is Jesus repenting? And again, it's a disorienting question. Like, that's a dumb, like, it doesn't even work to say Jesus repenting. Of course, he's not repenting, but it's a baptism of repentance. Like, what's he doing in there? And this is why, this is why John the Baptist himself is disoriented and doesn't think it should even happen. But it it takes a moment's reflection, and the answer is clear. And and the words that I gave you at the beginning of the, or maybe in the the assurance of pardon or the word of exhortation, that we see here the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry cinched together. Because it is here in this text that the king has come to be numbered with the transgressors, to identify with his people, to bear their sin, to do for them what they could not do for themselves. He repents for them. He literally bears their sin for them, going into the water and repenting as them and for them. A foretaste of what is going to happen three years later when he takes another baptism. He'll actually say to James and John when they come up to him and they say, hey, when you take your throne, can we sit at your right hand or your left hand? And you remember Jesus in a, and I've preached on this text as well, in a very mysterious thing says to them, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Like he links the cross itself to his baptism. It says what I'm about to go do is receive another baptism. Once again, I'm going to be numbered with the transgressors, literally. One on my right, one on my left hand. He's going to be numbered with the transgressors, bearing their sin and cleansing it, washing it away. The shocking thing of this text is that Jesus goes into those waters. And it's and I think two things are happening here. One, he is he's coming in as man to bear our sin, but it's almost as if baptism is happening like from the other side of the water. Right? When we when we're baptized and, and we go into the water, as Presbyterians, we let the water go on us, but but as we go into the water, we are being united to Jesus. It's like as Jesus goes into the water, he's coming from the other side. You know, he's coming to be united with us. He's being baptized, if you will, into us. He's he's going into the water so that he can take upon himself all the filth 
of the water. Right, We're going into the water, supposedly, in the repentance. The imagery there would be that the sinners are going into the water to be cleansed. Making the water putrid, I guess. But Jesus goes into the putrid waters to take that upon himself and to wear it for the next three years of his life. And then finally at Golgotha to deal with it. To pay for it. He's numbered with the transgressors so that by his stripes, we may be healed. So that he can be bruised for those iniquities. Those iniquities don't just get washed away. They get paid for. He takes them and then goes into the fire. He takes them and then gets sifted out. So that he can be burned with the unquenchable fire. That's what he's doing. And so he goes into the water and he's baptized. And as he comes out of the water, so he's baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and he saw, and the heavens were open to him and the spirit of God descends on him like a dove alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when I hear that, two things come to my mind. One, Isaiah 53. Three, which we just read, right? That God was pleased to bruise him. It's a hard thing to hear. The father was pleased to bruise him. That he's given a place with the rich in his, in his burial because God is pleased with him. And here we have this same image. He comes up out of the water after bearing that he's in the mucky, dirty water. The Son of God is going into the putrid water. And as he goes into that water and comes up now smelling like sin, comes up smelling foul, because that's what he's done. They go in to be clean. He goes in to get dirty, though his soul, of course, we know he's not made sin, but you understand, he's covered in filth now. That as he comes up smelling foul, the Father says, that's my boy. That's my son. And I'm so pleased with this. That is, this is what God intends. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as they come together manifesting themselves beautifully in this moment, it is in this very act of self-giving love, of identification of the Holy One with the transgressors that makes the Father say, I'm pleased with you, son. This, this, remember, he is the image of the Father, the image of the invisible God, we're told by Paul. This is how God wants to be known. This is how God wants to be seen in standing with his people and redeeming them and cleansing them and taking their judgment, bearing the fire for them that they might be cleaned. You know, when, when we confess our sins every week in here and I get to tell you you're forgiven, God is not disgruntled going, oh my gosh, all right, you're forgiven again. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you, you know, you're back. <laughs> you know, this is not what he does. It is in the very act of his son bearing our filth that the father says. He, he could have said it anywhere else. But it's in this act that the Father says, I am so pleased. Right? It, gets, it speaks to the unbelievable, frankly, 
the unbelievable love of God for his people. And as Jesus comes out of the water, he hears that ringing in his ear. And by God's grace, that voice needs to be ringing in his ear because he's about to go into the wilderness where he's going to be tempted by Satan. And he's going to live a life where everyone's going to question him. Everyone's going to abandon him. Everyone's going to reject him. And he's finally going to have to abandon himself completely to this promise in saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But these words ring in his ear, you are my son in whom I am pleased. And finally, as he comes out of the water, he hears this voice and the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And while, and we can talk about it in Sunday school, it's a whole nother sermon. But this image of the dove descending on him, the Holy Spirit, you know, we could have chosen our Old Testament reading from Genesis 1 as the Spirit is hovering over the waters again. In, in Genesis 1, at the beginning of creation, the Spirit hovering over as creation breaks forth into being, as light comes out of darkness. You have an image of that here, but also the dove descending on new creation in the story of Noah. I mean, it's, you have the Spirit descending over the uh, hovering over the waters in chapter 1 in the original creation. Then you have the fall into sin, and then God chooses to bring about a new creation in the story of Noah. Like the story kind of goes in a mini way, kind of full cycle from creation to fall to a Savior in Noah to new creation. And when you get to that new creation, which harkens back to the original creation. It's not the Holy Spirit directly this time, but a dove that is hovering over it and that descends upon it and takes the, what is it? Uh, what was it? Olive? Is it olive? What leaf is it? Olive. olive. Okay, olive branch. You would think I'd know my Bible. And then, and then, and then brings it back to the ark. And, and here we have the same image that Jesus coming up out of the waters, right? The foul waters, judgment waters. The Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends upon him and I think declares to us, here is the new creation. Here is the new creation. There's a new beginning. You're a new man. We're new people in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I encourage you this morning to reflect. Go, Go read. Read this text again. Read this text in light of our other text. You know, read it in light of Romans 6. What does it mean that he's baptized, if you will, into you, and you now are baptized into him? All of, his unclean, all of your uncleanness is on him, but all of his cleanness is given to you. That's the beautiful transfer that Paul's talking about in, in Romans 6. And go read Isaiah 53 again and think about it in light of the baptism of our Lord. And may we be sobered by it to remember we're not playing religion games here. There's an ax laid at the root of the tree. The judgment has already begun to come. You've seen it at Golgotha. Make no mistake about it. There's fire in our future. (laughs) And either it's been born in Christ and we will be purified by it, or we'll face it alone and it will be unquenchable. So let us be sober-minded, but let us find our hope in the love and the glory of God as he sent his only begotten son for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you For the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you that he went into those waters clean, but came out bearing our sin, that he might carry it all the way to Golgotha and there pay for it, and thus making us clean. We thank you for that. Father, we know that judgment has come in Christ and awaits the world in the future. But we thank you that for us in Christ, it is in the past tense, for he has borne it all on our part.
Thank you for a Savior that was willing to be numbered with the transgressors and the salvation that he brought to us. We give you praise in his name. Amen.